when you don't respond to personal offenses against you the way everybody else does, guess what? You are incredible salt and light. Let me just ask you, when people sin against you, when they wrong you, whom does your response most clearly reflect? Jesus or all the unbelievers around you? Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How should you, as a follower of Jesus, respond to governmental indignities and attacks on your personal liberty? Is there a biblical warrant for believers to speak out against injustice in government and to seek redress for that injustice? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. And today, Tom concludes his current series with part eight of An Eye for an Eye. So far, you've learned how Christ Jesus clearly teaches that you're not to retaliate against personal insults or attacks upon your possessions. Today, Tom will look at your heart's response to governmental attacks on your personal liberty. Tom will also provide a practical and helpful application, and maybe some of your closely held beliefs will be challenged. Are you willing to submit your heart to the will of Jesus Christ? Let's join our teacher for more right now on The Word Unleashed. Paul, you remember he was arrested at Philippi as a Roman citizen. He was beaten, imprisoned. And the next day, they discovered, uh uh-oh, he's a Roman citizen. The law doesn't allow that. And so the city fathers said, look, let's just just get him to leave quietly. Let's just kind of hush this whole thing over. But Paul said to them, Acts 16.37, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and they have thrown us into prison. In other words, they've broken the law. Roman law doesn't allow for this. They have violated the law. And now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. Let me translate that for you. Not going to happen. But let them come themselves and bring us out. Now, Paul wasn't being petty here. He's thinking about those new converts in the church in Philippi. He's looking to protect them. He wants to make it clear that Christians haven't broken laws and don't deserve to be treated like this. But he calls for justice to be done with the authorities that are over him. Later, you remember, when he he realized he was being railroaded through the legal system, the Roman legal system, he appealed to Caesar. Acts 25, 11, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. He says, this is unjust. This is wrong. And I'm not going to stand for it. I appeal for my legal rights. So Jesus then is not forbidding Christians from speaking out against or using every legitimate legal means to change unjust or oppressive laws. There's another thing Jesus doesn't mean. Jesus does not mean that you must obey even those human laws that are contrary to the Scripture. This is crystal clear. You remember in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are called before the the Sanhedrin, the supreme court and president of the nation. And they say, stop witnessing, stop talking about Jesus. 
And Peter and the apostles answered in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Listen, when the law of God and the law of man come into conflict, there's no decision to be made. We must obey God. So, Jesus doesn't mean any of those things. So what does he mean? Well, Jesus' statement here has to do with our heart response to governmental attacks on our personal liberty. Let me show you why this is true. Notice, first of all, the the word force. The Greek word that's translated force there means to press into service, to force or to conscript, to draft. Both the Greek word that's here, as well as the concept, ultimately can be traced back to the Persians. And the Persians had their massive empire over the world at that time. They decided, the Persian kings, that nothing should delay the transmission of the king's decrees across the kingdom. And so the king made a law that the Persian royal post and its couriers had authority to conscript any person or any person's animal in order to get those decrees delivered. The Romans eventually adopted that same concept and even that same word. Any Roman soldier had the legal authority under Roman law to order anyone, and including Jewish people in first century Palestine, to stop what they were doing at any moment in time and to carry their pack or their baggage or whatever it was that was needed. It's interesting too, by the way, the, the Greek word that's translated mile here is actually a Latin word referring to the Roman mile, which was about nine-tenths of our mile. If you were conscripted like this, you had no recourse. What's the most famous example of this kind of conscription? It was during the crucifixion. In fact, the only other two places in the New Testament this word appears, it appears in the same basic context. Listen to Matthew 27, 32. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service, same Greek word as in our text, to bear Jesus' cross. Now, think about for a moment living in that culture when this could happen to you. Think of how infuriating it was to the Jews. And also, it was a constant reminder that they were in bondage to a pagan nation. Let's say for a moment you were going somewhere important. You were going to a neighbor or friend's wedding. And a Roman soldier happened to see you. You happened to be there when he needed you. And he exercised this authority. And he stopped you in your path. Said, I need you to carry this for a mile. You had no choice. No argument. You had to stop what you were doing and do it. So you tell me, what would be the normal human response with that kind of intrusion by government into your personal life? How would you respond? Well, they were angered by it. They resented it. And if they were forced to carry the load, they kept a careful eye on their little pedometer. And boy, when they got to nine-tenths of a mile, that load was going down. It's somebody else's turn. Also, as always happens with occupying armies, the Jewish people looked for small and subtle ways to carry out little acts of personal rebellion and revenge. So if you were waiting on a Roman soldier, before you came out of the kitchen, you you spit on his food. Or 
if there was a small street, a narrow street down which they were marching and, and you could get away with it, you hurled a brick from over the wall and ran. And on and on it went. Jesus says, don't do that. How should followers of Jesus respond to such Roman indignities, to attacks on their personal liberty? Verse 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, this is a Roman soldier conscripting you to do his bidding, interrupting your life, reminding you of your servitude. Jesus says, go with him too. When a Roman soldier demands that you carry his pack for a mile, I want you, Jesus says, to volunteer to go twice as far. Now, can we just be honest with each other? What Jesus is teaching here is radical in any age. And it certainly was at odds with what the Jewish zealots of the first century believed. It was even at odds with what the normal Jewish patriot felt. Jesus is saying that when government or government officials attack our personal liberty, we are not to respond with resentment, anger, grudges, and acts of personal revenge. And we are not merely to do what we are told by those officials, but with a heart of anger and resentment. Instead, we are to do it wholeheartedly even being willing to go beyond what is demanded of us. And we must even seek the good of the person who's carrying out that unjust law. What is Jesus forbidding us from doing here? Well, clearly, he is forbidding passive resistance and civil disobedience, even toward unjust rulers and laws. If you doubt that, look at Romans 13. Romans 13 Verse 1, every person, no exceptions, is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Folks, that is our government at every level. Therefore, whoever resists governmental authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good, and you will have praise from the same. Watch verse 4. For it, that is government, is a minister of God to you for good. You realize that even the worst human government is better than no government? Better than anarchy? I had just a tiny taste of that when we lived in Los Angeles during the L.A. riots, when the, the government authorities were nowhere to be seen and people carried out whatever they wished. It's, it's an expression of God's common grace. Even bad government, to some extent, is an expression of that. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who breaks its laws. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of what might happen to you if you break the law, but also for conscience' sake before God. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God. Verse 7, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 15. 
Listen, the only time that civil disobedience and passive resistance are allowed by Scripture is if government demands that we act contrary to the clear commands of Scripture. What else does this statement of our Lord forbid? I think it forbids armed revolution. Ironically, there were many at the time of the American Revolution who tried to use Romans 13 to say that Christians only have to submit to government if government's doing good and if they have a voice in that government. By the way, that obviously isn't what Romans 13 says. And if you want to know how they got there, I would really encourage you to read a book that I'm reading right now written by a friend of mine and a member of the master's college faculty, the history faculty there. The book is entitled The Religious Beliefs of the Founding Fathers by Greg Frazier. He takes not their public rhetoric, but their private correspondence and shows what they believe. But he also shows how the American pulpits turn Romans 13 on its ear. Sadly, there are many Christians even today in the Christian right who have hinted at, even in some cases spoken, in justification of armed rebellion if the wrong person is elected in November and tries to enact some agenda with which they don't agree. Listen, their approach to government, their approach to the government with which they disagree is I'll only stop fighting them when they pry the gun from my cold, dead fingers. That is absolutely contrary to what our Lord is teaching here. When Paul wrote Romans 13, he wrote it to the Romans. People who were living in Rome under unjust Roman laws, oppressive Roman laws, and were under a man named Nero. And I don't care who's elected in November, it won't be that bad. There's a third thing I think Jesus forbids here, and that is resentment against specific laws and specific governmental officials. Resentment against specific laws and specific governmental officials. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. This passage is concerned with a man's natural resentment at the demands of government upon him. It has reference to our dislike and hatred of legislation of which we do not approve, which we do not like, and which we have opposed. Yes, we tend to say, they were passed by Parliament, or in our case, Congress. But why should I obey? How can I get out of this? That is the attitude our Lord is condemning, end quote. Now, can we just ask, what are some of the laws right now that are the most challenging for us as Christians or for many Christians? Well, higher taxes to pay for programs we don't agree with. That's a hard one. For many, the new health care law. And the list goes on and on. As a Christian, you can use the legal system, you can use the legal processes that government allows, you can peacefully protest, you can get involved in the political system, you can and should vote, you can try to change the laws that you see as unjust through the legislatures, but at the same time that you do that, you must never harbor anger or bitterness about those laws or those who sought to pass them. And until the law is changed legally, you must obey every human law for the Lord's sake. And throughout that process, you must show respect and honor for every governmental official, even those you didn't vote for and don't agree with. That's what Jesus says. 
Lloyd-Jones says, our Lord says that not only must we not resent these things, we must do them willingly, and we must even be prepared to go beyond what is demanded of us. Any resentment that we may feel against the legitimate government of our land is something which our Lord condemns. Not only disobedience, but resentment. Let's look at the fourth example our Lord uses. Intentional attacks on our personal generosity. Verse 42. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Again, this does not mean that you must always give a person what they ask you to give them. Don't give money to someone if you know that's going to facilitate their sin. You say, is there biblical justification for that? Absolutely. Try 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Paul says, if a man won't work, he shouldn't what? Eat even if he begs you for food. God himself doesn't give us everything we ask of him. James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So what does he mean? Remember the context. These commands are in a paragraph with a central theme. He's talking about how to respond when people do evil things to you. So in verse 42, the person looking for financial help is not a friend or family member looking for legitimate financial help. It's a person who is asking this of you with evil intent and motive. In the Jewish context of the first century, the Old Testament law required that Jewish people give to other poor Jewish people interest-free loans by the way, is exactly the opposite of the way we do in our culture. The poor people bear the brunt of the highest interest rates. The law demanded a generous spirit. But as you might guess, there were those in the culture who sinfully took advantage of the generosity that the Old Testament law required. And this is what Jesus is addressing here. If I had time, I'd take you to Luke 6, verses 34 and 35, a parallel passage where Jesus says, I want you to lend to your enemies. That's what he's talking about here. Here is a person who knows what the law required, and they're trying to take advantage of that with a Jewish believer. So here's a Jewish believer in Christ caught between a rock and a hard place. They're commanded to give interest-free loans. They're commanded to give generously. But there were times when they knew that person was intentionally trying to take advantage of all of that. Now, if that happened to you, what would the temptation be? Anger, resentment, spirit of revenge, grudges. Jesus says, don't do that. Instead, just be wisely generous. And by the way, that's still commanded of us in the New Testament as believers. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, instruct those who are wealthy in this world to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. 1 John 3 Whoever has the world's goods, by the way, that's all of us, and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue only, but in deed and truth. I want you to think about a person who has tried to take advantage of your generosity. How do you respond to that? Jesus says, don't resent them, don't get angry, don't get bitter, don't seek revenge. Be wisely generous and let God deal with their heart. 
Jesus says, when people do evil to us, we must not respond sinfully. When they attack us sinfully, we must not hostily oppose them. Don't declare war against that person. Don't harbor a grudge. Don't seek revenge. Why? Well, remember what Jesus said just a few verses before this, back up in verses 13 to 16? He said, in the world we are what? Salt and light. When you don't respond to personal offenses against you the way everybody else does, guess what? You are incredible salt and light. Let me just ask you, when people sin against you, when they wrong you, whom does your response most clearly reflect? Jesus or all the unbelievers around you? The scribes and Pharisees twisted the Scripture to justify their anger and their bitterness and their grudges and their revenge, an eye for an eye. But Jesus says as His disciples, we must never tolerate that. Instead, we must respond totally differently. We must intentionally do good to those who attack us. We must return good for their evil. We even should do good to those whom we know are trying to take advantage of us. We must love them and pray for them and genuinely seek their best interest. That's how Jesus demands that we respond. Here's the really amazing part. It's how Jesus always responded. Think about just during his crucifixion. Jesus experienced all of this. They attacked his personal dignity. He was slapped and spit on and insulted and ridiculed again and again and again. They attacked his personal property. He was wrongly convicted of a crime, and as a result of that, they took away literally everything he owned. They took away the shirt off his back, literally. Jesus' personal liberty and even his life were taken from him, both by a corrupt Jewish leadership and by a corrupt Roman governor. Jesus' personal generosity was attacked. Think about this. Who does the Bible say holds all things together? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one who was helping the oxygen those Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers were taking to their body convert into life. He's the one who was keeping their hearts beating. He's the one who provided for their daily needs. And they took those good gifts, and they took advantage of it to crucify Him. But how did Jesus respond to those attacks? How did He respond to all those indignities? He loved His enemies, He prayed for them, and He continued to do them good. Those Jewish leaders who hurled their insults at him and wrongly convicted him went home to enjoy the fruits of his goodness that night. As I think about that this week, my mind went back again and again to one passage. 1 Peter chapter 2. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept on entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. But here's, here's where it gets to us. Listen to this. He himself bore our sins, plural. Think about the sins you've committed this week. He bore our sins. God credited those sins that you committed to Jesus and then treated Jesus as if he had sinned those sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series titled An Eye for an Eye. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. But Tom, before we end our time today, would you share a closing thought with us? You know, Bill, I think the most helpful thing for us to remember as we conclude our study together is just to remember that our God is just and that justice will be done. I think part of what motivates us to take matters into our own hands is this sense that a wrong has been done, and if we don't right it, then it will stay an injustice. But the truth is, our God is a God of perfect justice. Justice is the foundation of his throne, the psalmist tells us. And so our God will leave no injustice unrighted. He's going to make everything right in his time at the judgment. So we, like Christ, when he was wronged, can entrust ourselves to the one who judges righteously, knowing that in the end, he will make everything right. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.